Welcome to another edition, Tangentially Speaking, coming at you from Portland, Oregon. Uh, this week, I, uh, I had a conversation with Mitch Schultz, who uh, is the writer and director of a very interesting documentary called The Spirit Molecule. Uh, it's about DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is a naturally occurring substance in the brain. Um, not only in the human brain, but in the brain of just about everything that's got a brain. And it even seems to be in pretty much all the plants out there. It's a widely um, dispersed molecule in our world among all living things, apparently. Uh, and it's also something that will make you trip balls. Uh, which I don't really get that phrase, but I, people say it. I was tripping balls. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I guess it means they were tripping a lot, tripping hard, which is what DMT will do. DMT is the psychoactive, one of the psychoactive molecules in ayahuasca, the famous tea made by, uh, holy people in traditional cultures in the Amazon. What's very interesting, and a lot of you know about this, but for those who don't, uh, just briefly, one of the things that's very interesting about ayahuasca is that you've got, um, it's a tea made of essentially two different plants, the, the bark of a vine and leaves of a shrub um, that both grow in the Amazon. Now, neither one of these plants has any... Uh, nutritional value they're not it's not you know like the leaf of broccoli or something that you're already working with um so there's no reason for the people in the amazon to have been experimenting with eating these things or or you know mixing them up anyway you've got in the bark of the vine is the dmt but the problem is that there's an enzyme in our stomach that breaks it down right away so if you just ate this vine or chewed on it or made a tea of it or whatever it wouldn't have any psychoactive effects because of this enzyme that would break it down before it got into your system um, but in the leaves of this shrub is uh, a chemical that blocks the action of that enzyme in our stomachs and so when you mix these two things together and you boil them for 12 hours it makes a tea where when you drink it the one chemical blocks the enzyme from breaking down the other chemical so the other chemical sort of passes through and gets to the brain and you trip balls now how the hell did people in the amazon figure out how to come how to do this how to take the leaves from this shrub mix it with the the bark of this vine put it in over a fire for 12 hours make a tea out of it drink this stuff which tastes horrible by the way uh in order to get this effect nobody knows nobody can explain it if if you talk to the <clears throat> pharmacologists who who go to the amazon they'll say well you know trial and error well, how many species of plants exist in the Amazon? How many trials and errors would you have to go through before you came up with something like this? And how many times would you have poisoned yourself to death in your trials and errors before you did come up with this? So 
There's something pretty strange about the whole trial and error explanation, but the explanation you get from the native people is no less enigmatic because what they say is, well, the ancestors told us. And if you pursue it a little further and say, well, how did the ancestors know to do this? They say, well, the plants themselves speak to the ancestors. The plants told us what to do. So I don't know. You can uh, pick the explanation that makes the most sense to you. But ayahuasca is a very mysterious and interesting uh, plant messenger. And DMT is one of the, the principal psychoactive ingredients in that. So I would encourage you to check out this film, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, if you're at all interested in cognition, in reality. If you're not interested in reality, <laughs> I don't know what the hell you're interested in. Uh, but it's a very interesting film. Uh, SpectralAlchemy.com is Mitch's site. Uh, he'll mention it in the conversation. But you can also just Google the DMT, the spirit molecule. I think it's uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, I think they've got it there. It's, um, it's all over the place. Heads up, the first uh, six and a half minutes, there's some noise coming through because Mitch was wearing a lapel mic and it was rubbing on his shirt. We recorded this conversation over Skype. It, actually, the sound is really good. I, I was surprised at how good the sound was. But for the first few minutes, you've got that weird sort of rubbing sound. Please don't be put off by that. If it really, if you're listening with headphones or something and it is bothering you, just jump ahead uh, a couple of minutes, I think at um, six and a half minutes into the conversation, uh, we stopped and fixed the mic, and then it sounds great from there on. Sponsors this week are, we're going to keep it simple, Shore Design T-shirts, my favorite sponsor all time, my first there's nothing like the first sponsor, you know. Uh, SureDesignTshirts.com. Use the code Sex at Dawn at checkout. Get 10% off. Uh, you've heard me wax philosophical and poetic about my wonderful Sure Design T-shirts. Uh, you can get them at uh, ChrisRyanPhD.com in the store if you want the Civilized to Death, the Sex at Dawn, the Paleo Modern, and the Tangentially Speaking shirts, hoodies, T-shirts, all sorts of goodies there at the uh, store tab. Um, but if you want something else, you already got that, you don't like those styles, whatever, just go to shoredesigntshirts.com and check out all the amazing designs they've got there. Uh, Bennett sent me some of these um, these new marijuana label things, you know, Maui Wowie and Panama Red and all these things. They're really nice color designs or color layouts. You can hear Cassie in the background making a breakfast smoothie. <laughs> Sorry about that. This is a real homemade operation here. I'm not going to get into a big rant this week, but uh, one thing that's been on my mind, I wrote a blog about it yesterday on Psychology Today, is this thing with the Atlanta Hawks owner um, who is being forced sort of to sell his uh, stake in the team. This is an NBA team uh, for uh, what's being called a racist email that he sent a couple of years ago. It's very, it's a very interesting uh, situation because I think it sheds light on what's going on in America and our um, 
strange sort of magical feeling about words um, that we think that if we outlaw certain words and certain conversational topics that we will have then through some alchemical process eliminated uh, problem, like a real problem. Like if we if we just never mention war, then somehow war will stop. Uh, you know, it's, it's that kind of thinking. Um, so this guy's email is described as racist in all these headlines. And, you know, the NBA is uh, offended. And, you know, this is offensive, inappropriate, blah, 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 blah. But you go read his email. And here's what he, here's what happened. Uh, they weren't getting enough season ticket purchases uh, for the team. So he said, well, you know, you look around the league, you see who buys season tickets, a rich middle-aged white guys. You know, that's basically it, right? Because there's corporate stuff and whatever. You can afford $5,000, $10,000 a year to go watch basketball. That's who it is, right? He said, in Atlanta, um, what, you know, all, we've sort of geared the whole experience in the arena at the live games toward the black audience. All our cheerleaders are black. All the music is hip hop, you know, sort of uh, culturally oriented toward um, black people, which makes sense. The population of Atlanta is largely black. Uh, the team's black. You know, basketball is popular with black people. Um, but the problem is then that um he thinks that white people, some white people aren't comfortable being a minority in the stadium. And also, I think the stadium's in a part of the city that's predominantly black. So what's happened is that some of these, their target demographic for season tickets, these rich, middle-aged white guys, aren't feeling comfortable at the game. So that's why they're not selling as many tickets to them. So he suggested maybe we should have some white cheerleaders and, you know, some of the music, you know, instead of like recent hip hop, maybe, you know, 90s stuff that these some of these not all 90s stuff, but some mix some music in so that these uh, older white guys won't feel so out of place in the in the stadium. And he went on to say, like, I've never felt uncomfortable and, you know, I, I love it. But I'm just saying, I think that's that might be our problem with selling these these tickets. Uh, I think that's a pretty accurate um, paraphrasing of his email. I encourage you to to read it online. It's available everywhere. Uh, his name's Levinson. I think Bruce Levinson. But uh, you can see my if you want to read my blog at Psychology Today, it's uh, just Google Chris Ryan Levinson Psychology Today or whatever, and you'll see it there. Um, that's it. Now, where's the racism in that? If there's any racism, it may be that he's referring to what he thinks is latent racism in these guys who aren't comfortable in the in the stadium because of the whole sort of black vibe going on there. But to notice that isn't racist, is it? To mention it, is that racist? And even, I don't even know that it's racist that those guys might be uncomfortable in that situation, right? I mean, if you flip it around, 
as we do, right? Most situations are predominantly white in American society, and there might be a minority of blacks or Hispanics or Asians or what have you. And I don't see how for someone to say, you know, mm, yeah, I'm uncomfortable being the, you know, the only black person. For example, where I went to college, there were very few black people there. Um, and some of them, I, I hung out with some of them, and I remember having conversations where they were like, yeah, you know, sometimes it sucks being like the only black guy in class, right? It's it's a hassle. No, I never thought that was racist. I never, it never occurred to me that that would be racist. Now, you know, I understand I'm speaking from a point of privilege and all that, but to simply say somebody is uncomfortable in uh, an environment that's predominantly geared toward another culture or another another cultural context, I don't see how that is uh, forbidden language. I, I don't, and I certainly don't see how noticing that that's happening is in any way racist or something that should be uh, cause for concern or alarm or, you know, being forced to, to sell your NBA franchise team. I don't get it. Um, maybe I'm racist. I don't know, but I just don't see it. The other thing that happened this week, of course, is that Joan Rivers died. So uh, that's, you know, that's really why I wanted to raise this, because she was such an ardent defender of the right to say whatever the fuck she wanted to say. And, you know, if people got offended, well, they didn't have to listen. And I think that's the right approach to take to these things, because, you know, everybody's talking about how we need to have an honest conversation about race. I agree. I think that's long overdue. But the first principle of any honest conversation is allowing people to express their reality, allowing people to say what it is that they're feeling, right? If if you can't express what you're feeling or what you're noticing, then there's no conversation. And if everybody's running around being offended about everything, and, and by the way, I, I haven't, I mean, I haven't looked into this a lot. I Googled it a bit yesterday when I was writing the blog piece, but it doesn't seem like, from what I've seen, it doesn't seem like the black community is, is up in arms about this. It seems to be something that's happening largely between, uh, you know, the, the NBA uh, administrators and this owner of the team. Uh and it's it seems like there's some sort of bizarre political correctness. Everybody's afraid to even discuss these things. And yet, at the same time, we're calling for an honest conversation. Go figure. Joan Rivers will be missed. Joan Rivers and George Carlin should have gotten together and had babies. I'll tell you, could you imagine? All right, that's enough of my rant. Uh, the other sponsor of this week's episode is Audible. Uh, go to audibletrial.com slash dawn, and you can get your own free audiobook. Uh, I'm going to play you a sample from DMT, The Spirit Molecule by Rick Strassman, uh, which is the book that uh, obviously that the film was based on. And um, that's a five-minute thing. I'll play that for you. Um, but really, check them out. It's a free 30-day trial, 
if you sign up, they send some cash our way. I think we get like 10 or 15 bucks for everybody who signs up, which is great. Uh, it's no money out of your pocket, uh, but it uh, helps support the podcast. And then if you decide you don't want to continue, you don't have to pay anything. You got your 30-day free trial, and you can walk away, and we get to keep the money. So that's a nice way to support the podcast if you want to. Also, if you don't know, uh, I do these. I do another podcast series where I just talk about crazy shit that happened when I was traveling. Uh, when I was young and wild and getting in trouble. And um, I just posted a couple about working in Alaska and a cannery. And then I went to Mexico and ended got mixed up with these, these uh, disreputable characters in Mexico. And uh, I, I uh, posted those. So those are bonus episodes. You can get them if you uh, get a premium membership. If you want to get a premium membership, go to tangent.libsyn.com and uh, you'll see how to do it there. If you can do a one-year thing, I think it's 20 bucks. You can do a six-month thing. You can do a one-month thing. So if you're short of cash, just do the one-month thing and download them all, and uh, there you go. Uh, thank you for listening. Here's the sample from DMT, The Spirit Molecule by Rick Strassman, which you can get at audibletrial.com slash sexaton. The late Willis Harmon possessed one of the most discerning minds to apply itself to the field of psychedelic research. Earlier in his career, he and his colleagues administered LSD to scientists in an attempt to bolster their problem-solving skills. They found that LSD demonstrated a powerfully beneficial effect on creativity. This landmark research remains the first and only scientific project to use psychedelics to enhance the creative process. When I met Willis 30 years later in 1994, he was president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, an organization founded by the sixth man to walk on the moon, Edgar Mitchell. Mitchell's mystical experience, stimulated by viewing Earth on his return home, inspired him to study phenomena outside the range of traditional science that nevertheless might yield to a broader application of the scientific method. During a long walk together along the central California coastal range one day, Willis said firmly, at the very least we must enlarge the discussion about psychedelics. It is in response to his request that I include in this book highly speculative ideas and my own personal motivations for performing this research. This approach will satisfy no one in every respect. There is intense friction between what we know intellectually or even intuitively and what we experience with the aid of DMT. As one of our volunteers exclaimed after his first high-dose session, Wow, I never expected that. Or as Dogen, a 13th century Japanese Buddhist teacher said, we must always be disturbed by the truth. Enthusiasts of the psychedelic drug culture may dislike my conclusion that DMT has no beneficial effects in and of itself, that rather the context in which people take it is at least as important. Proponents of drug control may condemn what they read as encouragement to take psychedelic drugs and a glorification of the DMT experience. Practitioners and spokespersons of traditional religions may reject the suggestion that spiritual states can be accessed and mystical information gained through drugs. 
Those who have undergone alien abduction and their advocates may interpret my suggestion that DMT is intimately involved in these events as a challenge to the reality of their experiences. Opponents and supporters of abortion rights may find fault with my proposal that a pineal DMT release at 49 days after conception marks the entrance of the spirit into the fetus. Brain researchers may object to the suggestion that DMT affects the brain's ability to receive information rather than only generating those perceptions. They also may dismiss the proposal that DMT can allow our brains to perceive dark matter or parallel universes, realms of existence inhabited by conscious entities. However, if I did not describe all the ideas behind the DMT studies and the entire range of our volunteers' experiences, I would not be telling the entire tale. And without the radical proposals I offer in an attempt to understand volunteers' sessions, DMT, the spirit molecule, might have, at best, little effect on the scope of discussion about psychedelics. At worst, the book would reduce the field. Nor would I be honest if I did not share my own speculations and theories, which are based on decades of study and listening to hundreds of DMT sessions. This is why I did it. This is what happened. This is what I think about it. It is so important for us to understand consciousness. It is just as important to place psychedelic drugs in general, and DMT in particular, into a personal and cultural matrix in which we do the most good and the least harm. In such a wide open area of inquiry, it is best that we reject no ideas until we actually disprove them. It is in the interest of enlarging the discussion about psychedelic drugs that I've written DMT, the spirit molecule. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Uh, I'm here in the virtual world with Mitch Schultz. I'm in Portland. Mitch is in NYC. You're, you're right in Manhattan, are you? I am. Down in, uh, well, right in the midst of Chinatown in Little Italy. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to uh, virtually meet you. I hope we get to do it in person one of these days. I uh, just finished about half an hour ago. My wife and I watched The Spirit Molecule. Excellent. Thank so, you. And? It's fresh in my mind. <laughs> uh, very interesting, wonderful film. What, very, uh, you know, uh, congratulations. I know you've gotten a lot of congratulations for that work, but uh, well deserved. Thank I you. know a lot of the people who appear in it. Um, you know, I've I've been sort of associated with Maps since the early '90s. Okay, and um, so. Uh, probably half the people you interviewed are people I've met over the years, and uh, it was wonderful. Did you talk to Gabor Mate about being in the film? You know, we didn't get an opportunity to chat with Gabor. I've cha um, there's been a little bit of email exchange, but we didn't get the opportunity when we were doing the actual interviews. Um, but it's somebody that's always been on my radar, and I'm fascinated with his work. I think doing some good stuff. 
Yeah, he's he's really great. I had him on the podcast a while ago, and uh, it was wonderful to just get get a chance to hang out with him in his living room and meet his wife. And you know, just one of the highlights of our time in Vancouver. It's great. I understand he's he's a lot of fun to hang out with, and, and just very accessible, and obviously full of a lot of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, he's he's an interesting guy. Um, yeah, fantastic guy. Anyway, so, uh, you know, basically I just wanted to, to have you on because you're doing this work that is all sort of overlaps a lot with the things I'm thinking about and, and other people I've had on the podcast, very much challenging the, the dominant paradigm. Um, you know, yeah, you didn't have Stanley Krippner on the movie, but he he's another person who's sort of in the center of that whole thing. And um, one time, Stanley and I took mushrooms together. <laughs> okay. And and well, we took. I mean, this is one of the times that Stanley and I took mushrooms <laughs> okay. together. Good for the clarification. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you know who he is? Do you know what I'm talking I'm about? I'm familiar with the name, but I don't know much about about him now. He's uh, he's a wonderful guy. He's in his uh, mid 80s now. Um, but he hung out with Timothy Leary and Aldous Huxley and, you know, that whole crowd. He was sort of the in-house psychologist to the Grateful Dead. And um, he taught, uh, he hypnotized Mickey Hart to try to help him be a better percussionist. And they became wow. lifelong friends. And Stanley hung out with all these famous shamans. And, you know, he's, he's, he's a very interesting guy. But anyway, we were with Stan. I was with Stanley and, and sort of talking about, you know, big life things and, you know, what's the meaning of life and all that. And mm. I just remember him saying, well, all I'm trying to do is chip away at the dominant paradigm. I love you it. Know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm not going to get out of this prison, but at least I've started, you know, a hole in the wall. That's that's uh, all we can hope for. So that's certainly what you're doing as well in your work these days. It is. And it's, you know, it's been something uh, it's been with me for a long time. Um, grew up in a very conservative Christian home in South Texas, and none of that ever felt right to me and always felt like an outsider, um, but always felt like I was chipping away at that in some weird way. <laughs> and I uh, like to look at it now as, as kind of culture hacking. Uh, being able to go in and, and put some new memes and ideas out there and, and not to shove them down anybody's throats, but just to be able to put them out there. I think there's more power in, in that bigger discussion. And so it really was a focus of, of the spirit molecule for sure and, and how we're moving forward with the new stuff. Yeah, one of the things I liked about the way you did the film is it doesn't come across as a sales job. It, it's not... Um, and I remember even at one point uh, Joe Rogan, who narrates the film very explicitly says, look, whether you're into this stuff or against it, please just put your preconceptions on hold for a few minutes here and check out this information we're about to show you. So it's, I mean, it certainly, um, you know, calls attention to the the amazing potential of, of things like DMT, but it also, I think, is pretty pretty balanced and fair about the, the dangers and the legitimate concerns people might have. Good. I, it was definitely one of the things we wanted to accomplish. I, I think when a DMT experience pushed me to make this film, and I think originally there was a lot of, all right, I'm going to make the weirdest, craziest film that anyone has ever seen because of this. But you know, the, the more I sat with the interviews um, and the brilliant minds that we interviewed, um, you know, it started to just kind of tell itself in a way. Um, and, it, and, it, and it needed kind of a respect to it to, to not diminish it and, and to be able to put out these brilliant people that were very articulate and, and able to talk about the experience and, and even the potential of what's going on with it. So that, I'm, I'm glad that came across that way. It's, it's something we put a lot of time and effort and thought into. 
What was it like uh, lining up funding for the film? Well, I, independent filmmaker, so I, uh, the entire process from the beginning of putting the, the film together, the business together to start with, with Dr. Strassman took about five years. So family and friends first, and, and then starting to reach out to, to colleagues, and, and then just following leads along the way. So it was all private investment, um, and it's, it's been received well. We're getting our, our rights back after having it out with Warner Brothers now for three years. So uh, we're excited to that, and now just having the abs- access to this technology that, that we can kind of distribute it on our own, because I don't think this film is going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and hopefully the discussion will you know, continue with it. So, yeah, it was amazing and tough all at the same time, but I knew that I had to just kind of keep plugging with it. Raising money for independent documentaries, especially one about psychedelics, is not easy, as you can imagine. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's why I was asking. I mean, for any kind of film, it's hard to get funding, but uh, for something that's chipping away at the dominant paradigm, it's even harder, I think. And we're back with a cleaner audio sound now. We've <laughs> worked out the technical difficulties. Um, and we were talking about raising money for, for a film like this, and you said you're getting the rights back, so you had a deal with... Warner, where they would own it for three years and then it reverts to you? Correct. So the deal that we set up with them is a digital platform, so iTunes, Netflix, Hulu, a variety of others. And what they do is they, they took the North American rights for, for the digital distribution for a year and then they worked on international uh, in a non-exclusive way. But it's the, it's the, the rights that we're getting back. And really not the importance of that, but it just gives us a little more control on on how we're engaging with our audience and reaching out and, and kind of building that, that community. Because I really think the community behind this is there were a lot of people waiting for it and they've rallied behind it and it's very active. It, it raises a lot of questions, obviously, uh, the experience and, and just the potential of it and, and it, being able to reach out directly to our audience and talk to them, um, that's the part that I'm really excited about and feel like I've gotten the most out of. Yeah, yeah, and I see that you're using sort of innovative community building for Cancer Pants, the distribution of Cancer Pants. Uh, yes, yeah. It's I, another I, interesting film that we've, you know, we have to think about different opportunities for, for getting it out there. And, and another story that, uh, that we thought was really important to tell, my editor and myself and, and a friend there, and we... Uh, we were excited to put that out. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't watched it yet. I downloaded it. I paid for it. I uh, watched the uh, the trailer, and I was interested to see this this thing you've got there, where I tweet about it. I, I just, you know spread the word, and half the pe- half the money from the people who download it goes back to me. It's a very interesting model. Well, and it's part of what I've started to see. Another one of my collaborators and business partners, um, Nick Pelosi, who did The Sacred Science. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that documentary, but another look at Amazonian medicine. But he's been kind of at the forefront of looking, not only do we, because we, we want to continue to make our projects and, and have that, but at the same time, we feel like, again, that community and giving them an opportunity to spread the message for us, but also something that they feel is valuable, they're, they're going to want to spread. And, and I yeah. think enc- you know encouraging that, Financially, for them, is also another good incentive, and, and, and we like giving that back. I think it, it strengthens our community and this, the idea of this affiliate um, where anybody could get in, not, not just people with big networks, but anybody could come in and send it to family and friends and, and be a part of that. It's, it's a very cool system. I, I've never seen that before. It reminds me of the way the brain is organized, right? Where Indeed. You know, <laughs> you, you like, you're a neuron, and you've got all your connections, and then all those neurons have their connections, and you know, you get enough of them firing, and it becomes a thought, mm-hmm. you know? And what you're doing is so, it's so cool, because 
you know, like I'm not, I, I'm not distributed. I would, assuming I like the film, which I'm sure I will. I, I love these sorts of questions of mortality, and you know, if you if you ever listen to this podcast, you'll see a lot of my guests, including just last week, is a woman who's got a terminal uh, illness, and we're talking about you know this feeling of getting better and dying at the same time you know mm -hmm. it's I, I think it's a very it's a universal experience especially in anyone over let's say 50 you know where you start feeling it in your knees and your back and it's like <laughs> oh yeah. wow it, uh, th this whole dying thing is actually going to include me too i thought i was getting away with it there for a while something we never talk about in culture either it's or at least in this kind of western culture it's it's really yeah. amazing to me well i'm writing a book right now called civilized to death Right. Okay. And it's a lot of it is about how the struggle to avoid death, um, not only the experience of it, but even the thought of it um, actually isolates us from the experience of life. Absolutely, and so yeah. we end up in this sort of padded room where nothing ever happens. You know, <laughs> we think we can stop time stop pain and then we end up isolated and depressed and alone and desperate and anxious and wondering why you know yeah and then and also the trauma of actually coming to terms with it then because you know you are going to move on whatever that may be and uh it's still kind of one of those buried things and there's a lot of a lot of trauma even built up around coming to terms with that i think at the end of life and i've seen it in my own family yeah um, one of the people you had on the the film who i've also had on the podcast is charles grobe mm -hmm. who uh is doing work with um, and has done work with uh, uh, psilocybin, uh, treating anxiety in end-stage cancer patient, patients, which mm -hmm. is so cool. You know, using these substances not to try to necessarily cure a disease, but to help someone face a disease with more equanimity and and less anxiety. And some of the success rates that, that they're having, I think the numbers are upwards of 75% of being in, you know, top five experiences of their life and having that anxiety removed, which you show me numbers like that from any other uh, treatment, uh, that's that would be signed up immediately. So exactly. it, is, it is fascinating to see it. And, and I love having the success or seeing the success that they're having with it. It's incredible. And, you know, and then that connects again in this sort of neuron. By the way, you know, this podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. Mm -hmm. So it's like it, there's no structure. Great. Okay? I love that. <laughs> that's how I approach so, life. So that's perfect. Yeah, me too. Man. Uh, but I was just going to say with, you know, talking about outstanding success rates for so-called alternative treatments, uh, which, you know, brings us to addiction. Yes. And like Ibogaine and ayahuasca and, you know, one of the people you have in the film talks about that, how um, I think she's a naturopathic physician, if I remember. I don't remember her name, but oh, the Anna Standish, I think. Yeah, yeah. She addresses this this point of how having these transformative experiences um, very often upwards of 50 percent allows people who are severely addicted to to opiates or alcohol or what have you to just walk away from it and a year later they're the um what's it called the remission rate or the the people who go back to their addictive behaviors is very low yeah 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 especially so, with the iboga and I, I know there's been a big shift now too to start working with with ayahuasca um and you start thinking about the impact not just on the individuals that are having the addiction problems but within culture and within the family and, and the friends that entire network that surrounds the individual um those those things start to, to make some major impacts on you know what we're doing with uh, 
the jail system or the prison system all the way through to economics and, and just psychological betterment of ourselves. Um, it, it, it's, it's great to see it moving forward, I guess, is where, I, where I'm going. It's really, I think it'll make a huge difference. Do you think, you know, here, here's where I'm going to bum you out. Man. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's fantastic to see this chipping away at the dominant paradigm and more of us are chipping than, than at any time since the late 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it too late? I don't think so. I, 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 you know, otherwise, why the hell are we doing it? What's the purpose? You know, and I, I feel that uh, the people I'm coming in contact with, and I'm hearing it more and more. There's a there's a different tone to even three years ago uh, on whether you call it hope or that change and being comfortable with this with these new paradigms that are popping up. Um, I don't think it is. You know, I like to hold on to that and, and keep thinking that I, I'm here to chip away and make a difference at it. And I uh, I think the convergence of a lot of these different networks and things that may have been separate and the, the merging of them coming together um, is going to probably be that difference. It's this kind of power in numbers. Um, you know, the internet's playing a big role in that technology in general, but yeah, just to be able to start pulling the two of us talking, um, coming from totally different worlds, but starting to, to make these connections and, and we want to start pulling those and connecting those dots with some of these people that are doing some amazing work around the planet and I think that's where it does start to really make a difference and sometimes those changes I think probably won't be seen for a decade but they're definitely in place um, you know time is time is a weird one for, for humans <laughs> uh, we don't see the change right away we get a little frustrated but you know those things have a tendency to play out and, and you mentioned the 60s I think we're 50 years later whatever finally settling out from that big culture bomb uh, of LSD and uh, fighting against the war and, and everything else that came out of that. Um, and it's just now that some of that stuff is just starting to settle back down into culture and we can revisit um, psychedelics or entheogens as, as something that, that might be valuable for us. Yeah, you know, it's funny how, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, people talk about the 60s as, as a failure, mm-hmm. you know? Like even, even Hunter S. Thompson in that famous scene in uh, Fear and Loathing, he talks about the wave coming up and it sort of swept across the West Coast, this culture wave of peace and, and harmony and egalitarianism and cooperation. And it got to the Rocky Mountains and they thought it was going to go over and sweep across the nation, but it crested at the Rocky Mountains and then swept back out to sea. And, you know, then we got Nixon in the fucking 70s and all that. <laughs> um you know, and you always hear about that. Like, hey, we tried that in the 60s. It didn't work. Look, you know, those goddamn hippies. And I always think, like, you know, it's so funny how, was it Lao Tzu who said, when you choose the field of battle, you've already won? Mm. You know? It, and the way that is framed as a failure and, and people just sort of accept, yeah, we're not all hippies now, right? We're not all, uh, you know, living in communes, so therefore they must be right. It's a failure. They're ignoring women's rights. They're ignoring oh, yeah. the huge advances in, in, in racial uh, harmony. They're ignoring the incredible artistic achievements that came out of that era. And that are still I influencing, mean, like through music exactly. and through dress and, and fashion and every aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I often think like, you know, when I'm driving around in the car, it's like... Uh, you know, I'm listening to classic rock all the time, right? <laughs> a lot of people are. I mean, not just people who yeah. remember, you know. I mean, I was a kid, but I remember, you know, the first time I heard the Stones or the Beatles or whatever, when it was still fresh, kind of. 
But um, but young people are listening to that stuff, right? But in the '60s, who the hell was listening to like you know hits from the '20s? You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like it does. It's not old, you know. Uh, I was listening to "Come Together," that Beatles song, uh-huh. and and it just occurred to me like if that were new and came on the radio today, people would be going, "Holy shit, that's a hell of a song!" Still timeless, absolutely. Yeah, and it's. You, you know when you hear those things too. Um, you, yeah. you know when you hear that that music that's just got a different soul to it, and and some of the ideas that were coming out of that, I think, yeah, still playing out pretty pretty regularly. And you're right, right. You I mean, early like, Beatles, yes. yeah, early Beatles versus late Beatles. Give me a break, man. Thank <laughs> God those guys took some acid. I mean, I don't think it it cured uh, Paul McCartney, but certainly John Lennon got it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, Paul McCartney was doing silly love songs. I don't know what happened with him <laughs> later. But you know, I mean, do you know the, the little trivia moment here? Do you know the 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 reason that "Come Together" was written? No. Oh yeah, you'll love this. Do tell. <laughs> "Come Together" was written uh, as the theme song for uh, Timothy Leary's campaign for governor of California. <laughs> that- wow. That That's is... what next time listen to that song, listen to the words. It's about Timothy Leary. And that was okay. the song they would play at all his campaign events. He was going to run for governor of California. And just before it started is when he got busted coming in from Mexico with the marijuana in the car. Uh, so he was and, then automatically the enemy of the state at that point. Huh? Exactly. And he fled the country, was in Morocco, and all that crazy shit happened. Wow. Um, and the real story is his daughter had a bag of weed in the car and he took the fall for her. Ah, so he, he I mean obviously he was smart enough not to be coming into the country with mm. with drugs in the car but his teenage daughter no, wasn't <laughs> wasn't wow. she's a teenager yeah she thought she'd get away with it so that yeah huh. come together that's Timothy Leary's theme song yeah Crazy. I think you're right thank, thank goodness that they, they had some LSD <laughs> <laughs> exactly so uh, are you going to Ibiza for this uh, ayahuasca conference <laughs> Funny you ask. It's still up in the air, but I think there's a good possibility. We have started a new documentary on kind of the globalization of ayahuasca, and, and obviously that would be a perfect place to, to kind of kick off the production because we haven't started shooting it yet. Mm. Um, but we're ready to come out of development and do that. And, and there's a really good opportunity that we're going to go. I think, I think we kind of need to, and um, I'm hoping because I don't think it'll happen again very soon uh, unless there's a huge success. And at the same time, just having that after the last decade of kind of being in this world um i think is a huge step forward huge and uh to have people from around the world many continents and coming to do this work and and share is yeah again i think it's i think it's a big leap forward for us yeah it seems like a pretty unique opportunity especially i mean i was thinking just in terms of you know podcasting opportunities and and also a lot of people i know are going to be there so it'd be great to you know visit with people all at once well are you going to come over i don't know i don't know <laughs> just you know like you i'm i really only heard of it i, I was speaking with gabor mate a couple of days ago and he mentioned um that it was happening and i that was the first i'd heard of it i think you know somebody probably tweeted something at me a while ago but i didn't notice it yeah um so yeah, I don't know. It's you know, 
I'm sure you're dealing with the same thing. It's like, oh, okay, how much are two round trip tickets to Barcelona? Sure. You know, get out <laughs> to Ibiza, you know, all that. I mean, I lived in Barcelona for 22 years, so I've got a good reason to go anyway. Well, the last time I was in Ibiza was uh, 2000, and I was definitely not there for the for a purpose of this. And uh, it'll be interesting to go back. I'm actually looking yeah. forward to that juxtaposition a little bit. What were you doing? Like dancing in shaving cream? <sighs> just foam or you something? just had to go see what that experience was like. So after <laughs> after school and traveling Europe for a while, I thought I'm gonna go check it out, and uh, I did. Had a great time, but <laughs> those were long long ago. <laughs> different times different mitch yeah yeah before you got serious huh? mm-hmm. and your i read your bio earlier you studied film is that right and then marketing or playing me, in the marketing tish. world i well yeah i did my undergrad and and really film production and kind of communication theory at the university of texas at austin and then came right. up to nyu for graduate work and, and that program was kind of a big electronic playground i didn't i felt like i'd gotten what i needed out of the filmmaking aspect but this was a program looking at technology and they had different students from 40 different countries around the world and architects to sound designers coders and you were just encouraged to start thinking about how to utilize technology to tell stories create art um, help people but get away from the keyboard and the mouse yeah um, and I had right. learned quite a bit, and um, some of that, you know, after after years of just focusing on film stuff, uh, getting ready to launch a new platform, and, and been able to dive back in the tech world a little bit. Uh, this November, we'll be releasing a new site and experience. So, very excited to get back into into thinking about tech and my storytelling in a different way, uh, bigger, bigger, much wider net. When you were at Austin, did you get a chance to to work with Terrence Malick or uh, any of the other local? Luminaries, um, a little bit with Richard Linklater early on. Um, Linklater, yeah, yeah, he's great. great guy. And it's you know some of those guys sticking around and just really kind of helping foster that film community down there has been wonderful. I, I haven't worked uh, with Richard Rod- uh, Robert Rodriguez um, or Malik, but I man, I respect the hell out of both of them. I've had some friends that have done some editing with Malik, but uh, man, his his work is uh, just stunning, and uh, we're just we're glad to have him down there. It's really made the difference. Not always down with being in LA and, and can't do New York all the time. So my Austin yeah. break is a good in between. Yeah, I mean, I was reading. I don't know if you saw the a relatively recent New Yorker. Within the last couple of months, there was a profile of Richard Linkletter, and uh, I, I didn't know he was from Austin. I didn't know the whole story, and but just and I didn't know Terrence Malick was down there or Rodriguez. I, I didn't. You know, I'm not in <laughs> that world. Judge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's a crazy concentration of talent. I mean, wow, those are some of the you know best filmmakers alive right now, and yeah, they're all and in Austin, and they're sticking around. Yeah, yeah, and they've been able to exist. You know, they can still do the the New York and LA thing, but they've really helped support the community down there. So it's been it's been really great. Are you living? You're living in Austin now. I am. I'm back in Austin. I've been out of New York now for seven years, which is very strange to even consider. And uh, you know, watching Austin just blow up right now, it's it's got a lot of amazing things happening. Been a little sleepy hippie town and had its flair for a long time, but I think we're getting over 700 people a week coming into Austin, moving to Austin. Um, it's got a great economy right now, and obviously the music and the film world, and it's 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 growing up. <laughs> yeah, it's growing up. Yeah, yeah. That must be bittersweet for you to be watching. Bittersweet indeed, but uh, you know it's inevitable, and that's a lot. Of, again, what I'm thinking about is is you know increase in complexity and how these things are going to continue to morph and change. It, it gets frustrating talking to people sometimes, and and they're fighting this 
constant evolution that's that's going on and uh, I think it's easy to look look around us now and, and realize that it's not just us but the entire world around us is is in exchange and is constantly evolving and uh, it's it's inevitable it, it will grow and it will collapse at some point but uh, yeah 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 it's uh cassie and i actually considered moving to austin about a year ago when we were lo- relocating from europe and looking for a place accessible to la but not in la mm-hmm. you know we tried la and that that just no matter how wonderful you're situated in los angeles life still sucks I'm There's not a big just, fan of being in a car. <laughs> that's yeah, the bottom exactly. line to that's be it. two hours a day that's at least. It. Uh, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, we, we're really lucky. I'm, I'm sure your experience would be the same, right? If you're living in L.A., you're hanging out with really interesting people, and they've got really interesting friends, and it's all great. But like to get from <laughs> Malibu to Hollywood is three hours in a fucking car. It's yeah. bullshit. It's way too much. Yes. I love visiting, and I've got great friends out there, and it, it, it is great for those little short stints but uh yeah i'm really liking austin and it 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 does have a lot of this uh it's like i said it's growing up so it's trying to get a little bit more of that there which is really really good so do you know aubrey marcus i do i do in fact we've uh been working on a couple projects together we spent we went down to peru in april and then also in july Oh, you were on that famous Peruvian trip. Uh-huh. I, I just I was. was talking to him a week ago. He was up here in Portland for the flotation conference. Oh, yeah. Okay. And we had dinner, and he, he was telling me a bit about the trip to Peru. Yeah, that, that sounds like it was, it was a lot of a very interesting It was interesting a great, time. great group of people, too. And, and it was, it was, we've, we're putting a documentary out. I think it will be this next week, knock on wood, but uh, just for the community and, and with some of that experience, it's about a 45-minute piece and trying to get down to the personal levels um, and not looking at the huge picture that, uh, that we were kind of doing with DMT, but looking at some of this personal transformation is uh, what we're trying to, to look at with this and, and hopefully you know, gets, have some people come in and say, oh, yeah, that, that, that's what I've experienced, but hopefully, again, exchanging that or bringing that dialogue up a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. But we've had a well, great time, and it's been fun working with with Aubrey on it. I, I think one of the things that you know, people getting back to the failure of the '60s, I think people pretty much recognize now that the Timothy Leary approach uh, was a huge backfire. Mm-hmm. And now that gets into what I was saying earlier about your film being very balanced. I thought and. Not balanced in, you know, in the typical Fox uh, news, you know, uh, like, okay, some people like it, but it'll kill you. You know, that's that's not balance, but balance in like, yes, this has incredible potential, um, you know, but it doesn't it's not a walk in the park and it could be scary. You could, you know, think you're dying for a while. You can, you know, there are all these things that, you know, if you've got an unstable personality or you're in a really bad place in your life you might want to you know back away this isn't a cure-all right yes uh that to me is not only intellectually more honest uh than the sales job that timothy leary was doing but it's also um i think much less likely to provoke the kind of cultural backlash that you know stopped all research for 40 years I think you're right. And, and the nice thing about, I, I noticed it, I guess, with myself, and that's where I try to bring it back to, but going out and even pitching the documentary to, to raise funding again, um, seeing the almost knee-jerk reaction a lot of times when you like, start talking about a documentary, but then you even say the word psychedelic, and, and people turn and run the other way. 
um, I had to learn how to start telling that story a little different. Mm. Um, And sometimes there can be what can be perceived as a zealous nature of, of really wanting to share an experience in the transformation that you've gone through. But being cautious of the language that we're using and and there there are some some things that people need to be careful of with psychedelics in general and any sort of shamanic practice um it isn't just a walk in the park you were saying and uh, it's one thing that as as i go out because we don't want any of this fallout that that really i think fed that that thing back in the 60s or in the 70s so we want to try to be cautious and treat this with respect and and do it right you know do it do it right yeah, someone said in the movie, I don't remember who it was, but someone said, you know, um, you know, some of the negative experiences people had is because there's no infrastructure, there's no spiritual infrastructure, there are no shamanic traditions we're bringing to this, right? There are no uh, guides, there's no, and so people just, it, it's, you know, it, it's like giving someone a very uh, powerful tool, whether mm-hmm. it's, a, you know, a gun or a jackhammer or a hit of acid or whatever, and not no training, no guidance, yeah. no, no nothing. And so they hurt themselves with it. Of course they do. But that's not an indictment of the tool. That's an indictment of the way we're, you know, going about doing this. And so I think one of the things that's happening, you talk about going to Peru. A lot of people are doing these ayahuasca tourism, so-called. Mm-hmm. which at its best provides some of that yes right provides the context provides support uh provides reintegration of the experience and so on i know there's a lot of bullshit going on but yes from what i've heard you guys have found some pretty good people in peru and i know there are some excellent uh, facilities in uh, mexico as well where people are, are having very meaningful um healing experiences with this stuff and it's important for people, if, if they find themselves interested in this, and uh, I always like to remind people of this, to, to do the research. Uh, we have found some good people down there that we work with and that would recommend. But it's, it's not, uh, there, there is some, some shady things happening down there. And, it, and it's, it is important to really make sure that the people that you're working with have the integrity, first of all, um, be able to help you in any situation. And there isn't going to be... Even there's been abuse down there in a lot of ways, and I think just trying to avoid that. But go online, do the research, look what's out there. Um, several of the places we look at, we went to this place, Bio Park, with Aubrey, but then the Temple of the Way of Light, and Matthew and his wife own that, and they're they're doing a lot of good work. And Nihorao, um, which is another great place. But I also think too that that mind frame and that worldview is not always accessible for Westerners going down there. Yeah. Um, I think there needs to be a change, and I think I think it's it's unfolding this way. Um, that animist approach down there in belief system, which I'm very much in alignment with myself, but that doesn't always play well for um, somebody that has a uh, Catholic background. Um, and so, stepping into that space and having that narrative can also be difficult. So, the you know, seeing this Western world kind of merge with that shamanic world and and play things out a little bit differently, the the experience doesn't need to be traditional. To, to be effective, uh, but needs to just yeah. be held right. And I think some of those frameworks are starting to, to unfold. Um, and, and even seeing some of the stuff with the UDV uh, and the Cento Daime now and getting court approval uh, to be able to utilize these substances, uh, I think is a pretty good indication of it. You know, I'm starting to say, okay, look, we're taking a spiritual approach. This is for the benefit of, of the individual and us in general. Um, so it's slowly starting to happen, I think. Yeah, for people who don't know, um, 
uh, UDV is Unio do Vegetal and Santo Daime. The, they're the two churches in Brazil that have government approval to use ayahuasca in, in their ceremonies. Um, which I guess they, they were approved when? In the 90s, 80s? I think it was in the 90s the UDV was. The Santo Daime is more recent, and I don't know if that's actually gone to... I think it's just been in Washington State. It hasn't gone to the national level yet to the Supreme Court, I believe. In the U.S., in right. The, US. Oh, yeah, the UDV did, yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah but, but these things are happening. Yeah, yeah, slowly but surely. And it, it's funny how, how much of this is a return, you know, like... And maybe it's just the mindset I'm in with this book I'm writing, but it, it's so much of, of what I'm trying to communicate to people is how um, so many of the, what's the line? Uh, Marie Antoinette's dressmaker supposedly said, there is nothing new except what has been forgotten. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so... I feel like that's where we are. And you and I probably differ on, on whether it's too late from an environmental perspective. I'm sort of a doom and gloom guy. But, um, you know, it certainly feels like a lot of what we're learning is really ancient mm-hmm. knowledge. You know, like, for example, uh, these types of, of drugs, we can call them hallucinogens, psychedelics, entheogens, whatever. Um, and pathogens is another term I've heard. You know, they need to be approached with respect, right? Whether that's a shamanic kind of situation or, you know, in a more Western manifestation, but they're not party drugs. This isn't, you don't take a yeah. hit of acid and go to a bar. I mean, the people who do that are just asking for trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, you know, I'm sure you'll uh, confirm this. If you're tripping and you go to a place where people are drunk, <laughs> you're seeing a lot of ugliness. You are. You, and very difficult know. to even kind of integrate that into, into the experience, I think. And, yeah. and that's where a lot of negative experience, I think, uh, unfold. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I mean, people, and, and it's linguistic, right? Because we, we call these things drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, whether we're talking about cocaine or methamphetamines or opium or LSD or Ibogaine, whatever, we're calling them all drugs as if they're all one thing, which is just crazy. And you the know, way they're scheduled, if, you know, the same way. I mean, not having yeah. any sort of medical credence, a lot of these Schedule ones and um, grouping some of these psychedelics in there with, um, yeah, like you said, heroin and others, it, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Well, we should, since uh, you know we're talking about respect, we should uh, mention the fact that as we're talking, a lot of people we both know are at Burning Man. Yes, I, I'm missing it this year. I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed, but uh, so be it. <laughs> are you? So you're a burner. You've, you've been there. Yeah, I've been a couple times. I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily say you know I've, I've kind of been in the festival world, and of course, the Spirit Molecule has a lot of audience members within that that network. Um, but it's, yeah. there's something special about Burning Man, and I always like to say that everybody should at least try to go once. There, uh, you get to see what humanity is capable of uh, if they just set a line, put a, put aside a lot of the bullshit and, and go create. So, yeah, have you I've been out there been. before? Okay, no, no, I've never made it. it, and it's a shame because I was living in San Francisco in the early days, and some okay. friends of mine were going. I mean, this is 92 to 95, I was in San Francisco. And I remember people saying, dude, you should really come out. This is great. And, you know, the thing is, I'm, I've got, like, Irish heritage. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, like, super white. 
and a desert in August is just like the worst <laughs> possible place for me to be. Sure. And I'm not into dust. And um, I didn't have enough money to get a camper, so I would have been sleeping in a tent, which I've done a lot in my life. And one of the least, I mean, I love sleeping in a tent in the rain, you know, and it's a little cold and I'm in my sleeping bag and I'm snug and that's like the best place to be. One of the worst places to be is waking up sweating because the sun's on your tent and it's like, it's horrible. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> so I'm, I'm being a, up all night. Yeah, and there's thumping music, and I, I'm like, I, I've never been, it, you know, it sounds like I'm a grumpy old man, I probably am, but I was a grumpy young man. Well, you know, maybe maybe in the future, I'll just throw it out there and we'll just plant the seed that we, sh- we should get you out there. I'd love to, <laughs> to help yeah. facilitate that, and we, it would do it, do, it, do it the right way, and even for a few days, it, it's just, it changes you, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'd love to go. And, and now, you know, I've got a little bit of cash so I could rent a, a camper and drive mm-hmm. down and, you know, have a, you know, a little, uh, a little comfort, um, which, you know, I know in some ways is cheating, but fuck it, I paid my dues. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, I've camped with, you know, uh, very, some of the bigger camps and also went out, or the first time, I guess it was just a, a small group of us in a camper, but then the next time in 2012 was with one of the large uh, theme camps. Mm. Um, and it, it it does. It's nice to to have your showers and to have some AC in your <laughs> in your camper. I, I'll be straight yeah. up, but uh, yeah. It's, it, at the same time, there's something magical about it too. Where if you are in the tent, that stuff just starts to melt away. You don't. Uh, you start to just say, okay, wow, this is this is so amazing and so overwhelming in in wonderful way that you're just like, ah, to hell with all the dust. <laughs> to, to, to hell with the heat. I'm just going for it. Yeah. 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 No, I, I want to do it. And, and the other thing, living in Spain, it was always a big deal, right? So uh, now that we're in North America and we know so many people who do it and it's like, yeah, I think maybe next year's the, the time to go. Okay. I'll, this I'll book would be done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'd be fun. I've, I've got a friend. You might actually know him. Tal Ruspoli. You ever heard of him? No. Not- He's a filmmaker okay. uh, based in Venice, uh, you know, L.A., and he's made a film. Uh, he made a film about Burning Man. Um, what, he's you know, a, he's what's a, the name of it? I think I'm not, now I may know what you're talking about. I, you know, I don't remember. I don't remember. But if you Google Ruspoli, R-U-S-P-O-L-I, and Burning Man, you'll you'll find it. Okay. He's an interesting cat. I mean, as a filmmaker, you'll be interested in this. His father was um, a famous Italian prince who hung out with. Uh, Brigitte Bardot and you know the whole sort of you know cool 70s Italian European cinema, yeah and the La Dolce Vita is largely based on his life oh t- interesting okay yeah so Tao is is this amazing guy his his father was in his 40s at a party at Roman Polanski's house when he met this 17-year-old beauty and oh, fell goodness, in love. Yeah. <laughs> at Polanski's, <laughs> that, you just you set the whole thing up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, film, it's like the film, you know, Mount Olympus or something. <laughs> but anyway, that's Tao's mother. Okay. And uh, so he's like, you know, comes from this incredible lineage. And then he was in L.A. Uh, married to... Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Olivia Wilde mm. for seven years. And I met him because he was making a film about monogamy and problems with monogamy. I'm mm. um, sort of examining the, the, the failure, or, I hate to use that word, but the, the uh, ending of that relationship. Mm-hmm. 
So anyway, interesting, interesting cat. Guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll look it up for sure. If we're ever in LA at the same time, I'd love to introduce you guys. He's, Definitely, he's cool. that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there, there was something that really jumped out at me in the film. Many things jumped out at me, but there was a line, uh, Dr. Griffith, Griffiths, uh-huh. I don't, uh, he said, uh, he was talking about um, the sort of cultural significance of the DMT experience. And he said something about, he said, I think we're probing the bedrock of moral and ethical behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting because a lot of the research I've done uh, around sex at dawn in this next book is in primatology. Okay. And a guy named Franz Duvall, who's a leading researcher in primatology, has done a lot of work on more what we would call moral and ethical behavior in primates. Hmm. So it's, you know, it gets into this universality and Terrence McKenna's uh, stoned ape theory and all this kind of stuff. I'm just wondering, and you probably don't know this offhand, but if anyone listening to this has some awareness, I'm wondering if chimps or other non-human primates are using plants that contain DMT. I mean, I know all plants contain DMT, but in a way that's... um, I wonder if there's any evidence of... I know there's evidence of animals using what we call drugs, right? Drunken elephants and animals that seek out fermented berries and things like that. I'm just wondering if there's any evidence of natural behavior in non-human mammals seeking out the DMT experience. That's interesting. Yeah, And I don't... You know, I don't know anything offhand, uh, but I would assume primates being very close to us that not having it's not orally active um unless you have right. that combination so however i think to terence's point the the stone tape and i think the mushroom is the perfect um suspect <laughs> to to imagine us wandering around and and picking those up and saying, wow okay i think that would would be that that click or that that switch coming on for for new meaning and and wider perspective obviously and and you said that that pure empathetic i think loving quality of human beings in in his what i remember from reading his stuff on that he was talking about mushrooms that would have been growing in the um the you know buffalo shit and the you know, the Correct. shit of, yeah. uh, of the herds on the the savannah but what i'm thinking and and this never occurred to me until just right now in this conversation you know about chimps and bonobos mm-hmm um, you know, chimps can be very nasty, male-dominated, violent, all sorts of nastiness in, in chimps. But bonobos have never been seen to kill another bonobo. The, mm. they, there's no rape. There's no... I mean, there's a little violence, but it's mostly just to get the males to chill out, you know? <laughs> sure. And generally, your friends Duvall, who's studied these both uh, species a lot, has said that chimps use violence to get sex whereas bonobos use sex to avoid violence Ah, so bonobos are very much the sort of hippies of the the apes right they're very chilled and very horny and very sort of like let's all just get along kind Mm -hmm. of (laughs) and what I'm thinking and what separates them is that the chimps are above they're north of the Congo River and bonobos are south of the Congo River interesting okay 
So they differentiated when the river changed course uh, three million years ago, probably, or one to three million years. So what I'm, what I'm thinking is, wouldn't it be interesting if there's a, an easily accessible uh, psychoactive mushroom south of the Congo River, but not north of it? Because mm -hmm. if there is, that would pretty much confirm McKenna's theory, at least as far as bonobos go. You've just given me some good research to dive into this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you find something, let me know. Huh? No, and I, I think that's it's a great point and, and, and a good insight. I'd be very fascinated to find that out. I, yeah, I hadn't even thought I about mean, that. I it's, mean, it's definitely, you know, it's a tropical rainforest, so I'm sure there are all sorts of mushrooms growing in mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if that river is a, is a you know, or, or even if, it, you know, there's obs observations of bonobos eating these mushrooms, but chimps never thought of it, that could be interesting. But mm -hmm. anyway, uh, that's, that's leading us far afield. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Tangentially speaking, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it, I have to say to people listening this, it's kind of weird that we're not in the same room. You know, I, I, I <laughs> sure. get lost a little bit because I'm sitting here alone, but trying to hold on to a conversation. Um, I, I hope we can do this in person sometime. It'd I think be we really fun to meet you. Uh, what's, uh, what's next for you, man? Well, um, a lot of, the, well, my next work, I think, has been born out of, out of the spirit molecule. Um, kind of my personal navigation through my experience has really made me look at socially conscious work in general. Um, and I've come up with this kind of four-part manifesto for humanity, hopefully, to, to do some reconnection with spirit or being or however you want to describe it. And the general projection of it is, you know, with the spirit molecule, this kind of basic state of being, and you can find that through meditation or psychedelics or any number of ways, but we have to live in this 3D world. So the next documentary is looking at just the symbiotic relationship that, um, that we need to kind of get back in balance a little bit with ourselves. And looking at a place over in Melbourne, Australia, that's uh, about a little over 30 years old now that they took over a city dump and have now turned it into this oasis. And these are the kind of things that I see and I think, no, it's not too late. We can, we can you know, take back nature a little bit and help foster it to grow again and not be raping it like we used to. Um, the next part of that four part is, is really that celebration of spirit or that celebration of being or celebration of life and looking at art and mainly music in this particular documentary uh, called Global Beat Fusion. And the last part of it is really about story, uh, language, mythology, and, and how we're interacting and sharing. So this kind of sets up, you know, an overarching narrative and also feeds this this new platform that we're putting out. Um, it uh, will be putting out our original content through these different channels and these different documentaries. But that'll be kind of my focus, I think, for the rest of my life in some ways. There are a few other documentaries that are out there at all times and you know we're trying to, to put together, but this feels like it's it's my life life's work. And I see these docs too as at least transmedia narratives now where it's, it's not a done deal you know it's not like all right we finished the hour and a half documentary put it out and that's it let's move on to the next one but kind of an evolving story where we get mm. to include others in that discussion and we're putting out this is the other aspect of, of the platform is putting out our open source content so we let's say we had 100 hours of dmt interviews and we used one percent of that in the actual film there's no way i could hold that in my vault so we want to put this stuff out, encourage people to go make their own stuff out of it, whether it be mm. music compilations or if they want to make another documentary. You know, there's probably six, seven, eight documentaries in this footage from the DMT stuff that we did. 
And, uh, you know, again, just seeing these things as, as breathing and living stories that, that we're all kind of participating in. That's, that's another really revolutionary idea. I mean, as someone who gets interviewed in a lot of documentaries, my first uh, response is, wait a minute, who's... I signed a release to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> like now you're putting my raw content on the internet. I like the idea as long as whoever uses it is in some way, uh, you know, legally obliged not to cut and edit to make me sound like an idiot. Sure. I, and I, I get that. In my, you know what? <laughs> it's funny. My lawyer's like, wait, are you, what happens if something, if it, you know, your media that you puts out, it's going to be a different story. And I, I get the caution with it, but at the same time, I feel like there's going to be more power and more to gain out of putting it out like that than yeah. the negative aspect. And, and within our platform, it won't be a YouTube style where people can just grab stuff and just throw crap back up. Uh, it'll be highly curated. So we'll be accepting and, and you know, working with people that hopefully you're going to be doing and telling good stories that, that fall in line with ours. But, I, you know, I'm okay with it. I love just the idea of the remix and opening up knowledge. I think, again, that that, that ends up being a better long-term solution for us, um, for humanity. Um, yeah, it's time yeah, to open it's that up. interesting. Like the open source approach to media and, and the raw content. It's a very mm-hmm. interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, two things I just wanted to, to say quickly. Uh, definitely remind me to put you in touch with Stanley Krippner if you, if you I'd love go to, in. yeah. The, the dude is amazing. He like another person he spent a lot of time with was Joseph Campbell. One of my favorites. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just I, I it thought. Right there for me, yeah. You start talking about mythology, you know, that's that's your go-to guy, right? And in fact, Joseph Campbell is, I'm sure you know, gave a talk at uh, the Lucas Ranch when they were working on Star Wars yep. about mythology. And that became an annual thing. And then uh, when uh, Joseph Campbell died, the following year they had Stanley in to give the talk. Oh, okay. Uh, so he's, yeah, he's, he's very knowledgeable about mythology and, and just so many historical figures that you would want like a firsthand account of. He's your guy. He's Sounds amazing. Like a great interview. Yeah, I'd love to, yeah. I'd love to connect with him. He's, also, he's Marshall McLuhan is the other one that, that really sticks out. Those, those two oh, yeah. um, definitely been a big influence on me and my thoughts and, and where all this potentially is heading. Yeah, he's, his work is so much more revolutionary than people think because all they've heard is the medium is the message. And yeah. That, yeah. Leave it at that. But, man, yeah, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah, I still go back and try to read some of the work, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's still talking about shit that's, that's coming. It's not even here yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's looking at the idea of the Internet and this networked information based back in the 50s. So, yeah, fascinating stuff. And then, and then tying in the whole mythology and that kind of core human story that, that Campbell was speaking of, um, I think we're getting back to that. Like you're saying, there's a, there's a simplicity coming back to hopefully our way of being, even though complexity seems to be rising, there also seems to be a simplicity coming back into how we, how we need to be, if that makes any sense at all. I, yeah, it, yeah, it makes total sense. In fact, nothing else makes sense. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you talked about this place in Melbourne where they made an oasis out of a dump. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminded me of a story about um, uh, baboons that Robert Sapolsky tells. He's been studying this troop of baboons in Kenya for 25 years or something. And, um, you know, baboons are pretty nasty, pretty violent, very hierarchical, male-dominated, etc. And uh, they are what's called male exogamous, meaning that when 
the males reach sexual maturity, they leave their the group they were born into, and then they go out and, and sort of fight their way into another group. Okay. So there's constant s- struggle and conflict and screaming and fighting going on. Um, so he's been with this troop for a long time. Every summer he goes and spends the summer observing them. And he's particularly interested in stress levels, by the way. That's his area of research. So he, uh, one summer he goes, and there's, they've built a new uh, hotel in the area for tourists. This is in the Maasai area. And there's a dump out behind the hotel where they throw scraps from the kitchen and stuff. So the troop takes over this dump. And because that's some good food from yeah, their perspective, yeah. right? And, of course, the best food goes to the dominant males, right? Because they control everything. As opposed to bonobos, where if they find food, they all have sex and share the food. I love um, it. I want to be a bonobo. Yeah, yeah well, you, you are. That's <laughs> okay, the thing. Good. You know, you are. Next time you read, like, we're descended from chimps. No, no, no. no. Why is no one mentioning the bonobo? Anyway, uh, so the one summer he was there and the there had been a tragedy because the hotel had thrown out some meat that was tainted with tuberculosis. Mm. So who got the meat? The high level males. Wow. They're the only they wouldn't share it with anyone. So suddenly the dominant class of males was gone from this group. They were all dead. It's like, you know, Wall Street and D.C. vaporized, right? Oh, so what happens, right? What he assumes, first of all, the, the remaining animals in the troop were very, like, chill with each other. All the fighting stopped, and they were more cooperative and relaxed. And, and he was like, okay, well, this is cool for now, right? But next spring, when the new males come in, it's going to be like Vikings landing on the beach with nobody to defend against them. It's going to be rape and pillage central here. So he comes back the next year expecting to just see, you know, the evidence of a calamity. And indeed, there are new males that have joined the troop, but they're really relaxed. Uh-huh. And they're just lying around having a good time. And then the next summer, the same thing. More new males, but again, very relaxed. So... Here's an example of where the power of peace overwhelms the innate aggressiveness of the species. And that and can happen to us. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that was like 10 years ago. And the last time I talked to him, he said, yeah, this one troop is still chilled out. And it's so fascinating. Yeah. And, and gosh, th- those are things that I think need a little more attention. You know, just just that the simplicity of that entire thing. And, and traumatic obviously but at the same time uh it could teach us a lot about ourselves you know we're yeah. so into ourselves and humanity knowing everything sometimes we forget to just look around like oh yeah we're part of this thing you know and and we could learn from other animals and even plants for that matter <laughs> yeah yeah well that's that's a good place to leave it uh i know you've got a plane to catch <laughs> i do yeah and hopefully we can do this I, i'd love to do it again and do it in person and uh yeah yeah, definitely. It sounds like we, we travel in some of the same places. So, uh, yeah, next time we're both in L.A. or Austin or Portland or wherever, let's let's get together. Sounds great. I'll be in Portland soon, so I'll, I'll reach out. <laughs> ah, good. Yeah, good. Yeah. That would be great. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much. Mitch Schultz, uh, writer, director of the DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and Cancer Pants. Uh, where Give us a website where people can go to. Sure. Uh, Spectral Alchemy is the uh, name of our production company. So S-P-E-C-T-R-A-L, 
alchemy, A-L-C-H-E-M-Y.com, and thespiritmolecule.com is the site for the film. Please come check it out. We've got some new projects on the Spectral Alchemy side and, and a lot of really interesting and fun stuff uh, coming out here in November uh, with the new site. Very cool. So, hope to see you in Ibiza or someplace else very soon. Thanks for doing this, Mitch. Thanks for having me on, Christopher. Appreciate it. Have a great one. You too. Cheers. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.